0: Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you to join us in this place tonight. And we trust that you are here. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That prayer... Asking the Lord to be with us in this place is one that I pray every time I preach. But it strikes me that tonight is how we know that that prayer will be answered. We ask God to join us here in this place as we remember that earth shattering moment at which God separated himself from his son. As the sin of the world crashed down on his shoulders, Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned away from Jesus on that night so that he could be with us tonight. And so, as he has promised, he is here. It has long been a tradition in the church to place special focus on, in Holy Week, on the seven last words or sayings of Christ from the cross. We have made that a habit here at this church as well. So tonight, I wanted to reflect briefly on that cry of Jesus's, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's recorded in both Matthew's and Mark's Gospels, though not in John's, which we just read from tonight. This agonized cry actually tells us something very specific about the crucifixion. It tells us in a cosmic sense the nature and meaning of what's going on as Jesus suffers and dies. Now you might say that we know obviously the who, the how, the what and the when, right? Jesus on a Roman cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem In about 33 A.D. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Tells us the why. This word of Christ shows us that he is putting himself in our place. There are several different images that the scriptures employ in describing Jesus's work on the cross and Don't worry, those of you who have just sharply taken in your breath and gripped the sides of your chair. I'm not going to lecture on the various atonement models, I promise. But there is more than one picture in the Bible of what's happening on the cross. For instance, there's what's commonly called the ransom model, in which the main idea of the cross is said to be that Jesus paid the price for our sins. Indeed, Jesus uses this illustration himself in Mark chapter 10. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's also a victory model that uses more warlike imagery and depicts Jesus on the cross as achieving a victory over sin, death and the devil. Hebrews says that Jesus died, at least in part, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There's even a theory, some call it the moral influence theory, that suggests that Jesus' death on the cross was mostly exemplary that he showed us by that act how to love others in the most profound way possible. And at the Last Supper, Jesus did cast himself as an example for his disciples. This is my commandment, he told them in John 15, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so the moral influence theory suggests Jesus died primarily to show us the depths of love that we are expected to show others and to give us the ability to do it, to be willing to die for our neighbor. So these models, if you will, ransom, victory, moral influence, and a few others are all good biblical descriptions of why Jesus died on the cross to pay a ransom for our liberation, to achieve a victory on our behalf, even to show us how to love. But none of these are the main biblical image for what Jesus accomplished on the cross. These images are like beautiful planets orbiting around the sun of the overriding biblical image about Jesus's cross, an image that is all over the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and is given voice in Jesus's moving words from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the truth and the good news that Jesus died in our place as a substitute to satisfy the wrath of God justly poured out on sin. Now from the very beginning, God's people have always known that a substitute was required in order that they might be saved because God is too holy for us. Take off your shoes. He told Moses, while obscuring himself in a burning bush, the place you are standing is holy ground. Sinful people cannot survive God's presence. We would die. So in order to reconcile a sinner to God, something else dies in the sinner's place. At the first Passover meal, during Israel's captivity in Egypt, An animal's blood was substituted for the nation's firstborn sons as the spirit of death came over the land. Then as soon as they were free, God instituted a sacrificial system for his people. Sinners making an atoning offering, their finest animal to the Lord. And the spilled blood of that animal would for a year be their substitute and put away their sin. Now, of course, they had to come back year after year, but every Israelite knew that there was a sacrificial and substitutionary way to atone for sin. God's wrath was poured out on an animal in place of the sinner. But of course, the blood sacrifice of bulls and goats was never really good enough. At best, it only covered your sin for a year. Next year, you'd be right back at the altar with another animal. But the people, these same people who had always known that blood was required to atone for sins, these people also had always known that one day, one day, A sacrifice would be made to end all sacrifices. A savior would come. Here's the prophet Isaiah writing 750 years before Jesus. Looking forward to a coming Messiah who would be the sacrifice that would end the need for such sacrifices. He grew up before him like a young plant. Isaiah says, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. and We esteemed him not. And with his wounds, we are healed. And the New Testament writers connect this prophet's prophecy explicitly to Jesus. St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that for our sake, yours and mine, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, the sinless one, was made sin, smitten by God, to borrow Isaiah's words, so that we, the sinners, could be made righteous. After the close of the biblical canon, this theme, Jesus' substitutionary atonement for sin, doesn't go anywhere. You can trace it through the history of the church. Here's just some highlights. Eusebius of Caesarea, for instance, in the late 3rd and early 4th century, insisted that Christ bore the punishment, the wrath of God, that we deserved. Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century, the same. The reformers, Luther, Calvin, the Anglican reformer, Thomas Cranmer, and a host of others, In the 16th century, right up until the present day, there has been no time in the history of the church where the need for a substitutionary atonement, a person to stand in our place, was not known and indeed made central to the faith. From the earliest days of God's covenant community to the time of Jesus through the early and medieval churches, On into the Reformation and into the proclamation of the church right now tonight. We humans have always needed someone to stand in our place and deal with God's judgment of sin on our behalf. This was known as soon as God promised his chosen people that they would be his people and that he would be their God. They were sinners who could only approach a holy God if their sin was taken away from them and placed onto a substitute. And as soon as a Messiah was prophesied, and even more so once Jesus lived, ministered, and died on the cross, his sacrifice was seen in just that way. God's righteous anger against sin poured out not on us, the sinners who deserved it but on a substitute his own son the righteous one who could bear it now this of course is distasteful to some the idea that what happened to jesus was somehow deserved by us and perpetrated by god it makes god seem like a monster taking his pound of flesh out of an innocent victim. Could a loving God ever behave in this way? But we must never forget who Jesus is. Jesus is himself God. God is not meting out his wrath on some mere innocent. He is absorbing it back onto himself. He is bearing the weight of the atonement in his own body. But the people who have a problem with a substitutionary atonement don't, I think, at bottom have a problem with what it says about God. Instead, it's hard for us to believe that our sin warrants such a radical solution. But it does. And tonight, it is my calling to tell you and myself, that we are not sick. The Bible refuses to talk about you in any terms other than dead in trespasses and sins. That's what we're gathered tonight to remember. Tonight is about death. Every household was subject To the spirit of death on that awful night in Egypt before the exodus. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. Blood must be painted on our doorposts. Atonement must be made. But tonight there is good news. Even tonight. Because tonight, Jesus stands in for you. Jesus is your substitute. He became sin. And in that moment, the moment that that happened, God turned his back on his own son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was then that Christ became sin. Christ took the abandonment that you deserved. The sinless one becoming sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. The whole weight of God's anger at sin was poured out, but not on you. On Jesus. God turned away from Jesus for a moment so that he would never have to turn away from you. So when we pray that God would be with us, that's how we know that he is. Because for that moment, he was not with his son. At the end of our service this evening, we'll say a prayer that, like Jesus' forsaken cry from the cross, gives voice to the amazing and wonderful substitutionary nature of Jesus' death for us. Here's what we'll pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, we pray you to set your passion, cross, and death between your judgment and our souls now and in the hour of our death, give mercy and grace to the living, peace and rest to the dead, to your holy church, unity and conquered and to us sinners, everlasting life and glory for with the Father and the Holy Spirit. You live and reign one God now and forever. Amen. Jesus, we pray, set your passion, cross, and death between your judgment and our souls. And he has done that. He has done it for you. Because he was forsaken then. You never will be. Now or in the hour of your death. And to guarantee that it's all really true, Jesus will rise again. I'll see you on Sunday morning. Amen.